You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. I'm sitting in for Thomas Caldwell tonight alongside Plato's Cave regulars Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard, who has just returned from Russia. Cerise Previet, is that right? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> uh, you learnt nothing. Could be. What, was it meant to be welcome or it's, hello it's or a, some such greeting type thing? It's a hello, I think. I was told it was a hello. Yeah, could, I could be. be. I could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, dosh for Danya. That's goodbye. Is that goodbye? Yeah. Oh, too, dosh soon. Yeah, too soon. Too <laughs> soon. <laughs> it's been great. See ya. <laughs> uh, on tonight's show, we will be revisiting the 1966 classic Tokyo Drifter from cult Japanese director Seijun Suzuki and taking a foray into Slavic language filmmaking with the industrious Czech director Jan Hrebek. Oh, far out. Hrebek. Hrebek. Okay. Hrebek. One more time. Hrebek. Hrebek. And his latest offering, The Teacher. I'm not even going to say anything. Uh, But first, 2017 has been somewhat of a Stephen King renaissance. There was the hugely popular remake of the clown horror It. Then there was the forgettable film The Dark Tower based on the popular book series and Mike Flanagan personally brought his vision for Gerald's Game to Netflix. On television, The Mist felt like an obvious choice in a post-The Walking Dead world and was truly awful, while the best-selling success of Mr Mercedes made that TV adaptation inevitable. Which brings us to 1922, the last in a long line of Stephen King films and TV shows this year. Based on a 131-page novella contained in King's 2010 anthology Full Dark, No Stars, in 1922, Wilfred is a hard-working but none-too-successful Nebraska farmer who finds himself under increasing pressure from Arlette, played by Molly Parker, his discontented wife, to sell their spread and move to the big city. But Wilfred is loath to uproot and his rage is amped when Arlette indicates that her plan B involves divorce, a forced sale of the farm and her claiming sole custody of their son Henry, played by Dylan Schmidt, their 14-year-old son. Uh, The tale is told from the perspective of Wilfred James, who I should say is played by Thomas Jane, uh, the story's unreliable narrator who admits to killing his wife with his son, but after he buries her body, he finds himself terrorised by rats and, as his life begins to unravel, becomes convinced his wife is haunting him. Uh, Written and directed by Australian Zach Hilditch, who many may be familiar with from his previous films, These Final Hours and Transmission, what did we think of 1922, are rats and rotting corpses scarier than clowns in sewers? <laughs> what do you now, think? you you mentioned The Mist, but did you have you seen The Mist, the film? No. Oh, okay. That's a that's a big difference to that. I haven't seen the TV series, but mm. I, I'm I'm willing to go with you. There's a few iterations. I've been told. Okay. Yes. Well, the the the, the actual <laughs> film is marvelous. I loved it. Yes. And that also has Thomas Jane in it. So, yes. you know, but this is you know the the miss was made by Frank Darabont who has made a career out of um well The Walking Dead. He did the first season of The Walking Dead, but also out of adapting Stephen King films or novels or novellas into films. Um 1922 I was interested in seeing this because I was interested with the Zach Hilditch having done it. I haven't seen these final hours, but um, I was still interested in seeing an Australian director take this on. And um, and the Thomas Jane angle as well, and Molly Parker, who I think was just wonderful. Deadwood was my saving grace the year Deadwood came out or the few years Deadwood came out anyway, and she played the widow role in that, and I just absolutely loved her. But um, this kind of felt like, well, it was fine, 
um, it just didn't feel like anything spectacular. And I felt that it had a couple of points that were uh, to uh, not to, not to its favour, which was first of all an, the narration by yep. Tom Thomas Jane, uh, which I think his character adding that narration was really just seemed overly expository and um, dumbed it down heavily, um, and also um, it just the pacing. It felt very American, which is, uh, well, Stephen King is an American writer and it felt appropriate probably for the Stephen King material. But I could see in it, taking a broad brushstroke approach here in in what I'm saying, but I could s- see it being adapted by a European filmmaker mm. and being having a completely different pace and a different feel for a Stephen King. And I, it just seemed to... I, I just could see that there and I wanted it. I really wanted it. I thought this could have been so much creepier and less explicit. Yeah, agreed. I felt like the source material was the problem for me. It felt far too thin for it to be a feature film. Mm. You know, being a, a novella, I didn't feel like there was enough of a story there really. That it was. It, it, people are comparing it to the Telltale Heart and, you know, that sort of Edgar Allan Poe style and I, and it's very much that but it doesn't really go anywhere. I felt like it was could have been told in 20 minutes, didn't need to be a feature film. Mm. I don't know. What did you think? Mm. Well, I didn't find it particularly... Uh, atmospheric, which was a key problem. If you're making a horror film, you need to generally have some sort of sense of the heebie-jeebies being um, transmitted from screen to flesh of viewer. (laughs) Yes. And I did not once get to those heebie-jeebies, mostly because a lot of the methods employed um, towards that aim were pretty pedestrian. Like a, a slowly moving camera towards something as the music just swells in a slightly dissonant, discordant fashion. Yeah. Uh, time and again that happened. and it, The it, music it, by Mike Patton. Yeah, I did I notice that, which yeah. did surprise me. Um, but still, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't really to the film's benefit. It's a sort of stock sort of stuff mm. for a, a film of this ilk. And... Even the odd startling image was just not really startling enough. There were one or two moments where I, I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting, interesting use of a cow. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that was quite comedic. I was quite yeah. um, distressed by the, the bovine abuse yeah. in this film. <laughs> yeah, that, that at least marked uh, a little point for originality there. But a lot of the rest of the time, I'm, and are rats actually that scary? Really? Really? Not in this film. I no, didn't I, I, <laughs> Maybe in your bathroom, but not in this film. Yeah, in reality, more so probably. Yeah, they're yeah. actually some. They're almost comical at points. Where they're obviously trained rats standing on hind legs, you know, and it was reminded me of Ratatouille at times. And I thought, that's, <laughs> I don't think that's what they're going for. Yeah, no, it's, it's just it's just dif- difficult to find them that great a menace. They're just a bit too well everyday. I mean, I, I mean, I'd be a bit distressed if my house was suddenly overrun with rats. But I, I know at any given time. I'm not far from a rat. As, yes. as we do this radio right now, a rat is nearby, <laughs> possibly watching. Marvelous. It is what triple are you R. saying about the, yeah. Yeah, I was say about the Triple R studio? It just goes for any urban area. There, yeah. there, are, there are rats. And yeah. uh, particularly in the country, I'm sure he would have uh, experienced a lot of rats in the, yeah. you know, way down south in America. But yeah. Also cornfields, they're a bit done. They're, they yes. 
don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was just nothing new here. There was, was nothing new. There was just nothing new. Thomas Jane's Thomas Jane is a really heavy actor. He like, you know, he acts. Mm. You can feel him act. Um The Mist has just the most um traumatic ending and it's a, a very impressive ending. That's it's worthwhile watching it for that. Um there That's was nothing interesting because I often yeah. find my problem with Stephen King stuff is the endings. They they have such a great build up. Um I remember this one film, I think it was made in the late 80s or early to mid 90s called The Langoliers. Do you did you ever see that? No. It's it's sort of it's a strange, obscure one where it's like these people arrive in an airport. They've just got off the plane and the airport's empty. Um, the food tastes weird. There's no people around. There's a strange, distant sound. And it's a great start of a film and it's it's terribly haunting and stuff and then it just ends up that it's just a monster coming and it's eating the world or you know it's and I find that yeah. with a lot of his stuff and then it, the reveal is it was a monster. Oh I know <laughs> this the, the ending to the mist is a truly tragic ending and it's it's kind of I think I probably went oh no <laughs> at the end and I didn't see it coming it yeah. was really quite devastating but uh, and you know Thomas James Jane played Thomas James, I feel like say. He's Wilfred James, but he's Thomas, Thomas Jane. Jane. Yeah, it's confusing. Thomas Jane um, played a very different character. In this, a lot of the time I couldn't work out what he was saying. No, I had no <laughs> yeah. idea what he was saying <laughs> yeah. half the time. So it wasn't just me. No, his diction left a lot to be desired. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a thick Nebraskan something, yeah. accent of some description. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was warranted. Yeah. You know, it was about, you know, it was that kind of accent where he's, he's you know, literally got uh, a hayseed from the, the corner of his mouth at the same time, you know <laughs> what I mean? And I'm, I think it was quite genuine, but I... Uh, um, I didn't think I really didn't think he needed the narration. It needed the narration with Thomas Jane speaking like that. Um, but yeah, it just felt very quotidian, just in terms of horror. Just nothing spectacular. No, I, I think the production values were good to give it some oh, sort of plus. Look, like it looked, yeah, it slick. looked very slick. Yeah, yeah. it did. It but was lit nicely. It was yeah. lit. <laughs> it was yeah. lit nicely. Yeah. That's true. Um, but yeah, I think. Yeah, just for me, it was the thinness of the source material, which was its biggest problem. Um, there was just so little of interest to me in this The film. pacing was wrong too. It was just in some ways just too perfectly paced. They didn't um, drag out certain parts that could have... They could have really drawn a long bow on certain emotional points. And I think that the ex, the, the ex, exposition on betw- uh, from the, the, you know, the, the Thomas Jane character telling us what... He his motivation was, and to, it would have been far more interesting if we just he acted it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole uh, Bonnie and Clyde subplot could have been actually fleshed out. That could have been a lot more fun well, than the rest of yes, the film. Absolutely. But I yeah. kind of love that. I thought if the the rest of the film had have been a much quieter, more sinister film, and mm. then you had that Bonnie and Clyde sequence, like mm. bang, 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 like really fast in the middle. It would have been so much more dynamic. It's true. That scene, that what you're talking about there is um, his, he enlists his son into helping murder the wife and I felt like that wasn't even really explored properly enough. I know that he sort of uses the son's girlfriend as an excuse 
to, to maybe carry out the crime. I think what it wasn't Cer- strong enough. Cerise is talking about the son and the... Yeah, once they're on the lamb. Yeah, mm. on the lamb. Mm. Yeah, so then yeah. he runs off and explores his Bonnie and yeah. Clyde sort of stuff. But, yeah, it just sort of... Everything just felt a bit out of context. Like, there just wasn't enough um, justification for any of yeah. it, really. I it's thought. a fine film while you're chopping the veggies. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah while you're preparing some ratatouille, <laughs> I suggest. <laughs> Uh, If you would like to catch 1922, it's currently screening on Netflix. We'll be back after these messages. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Tokyo Drifter was released in 1966. In that same year, the Best Picture winner at the Oscars was Robert Wise's The Sound of Music. Sergio Leone uh, turned out the pinnacle of spaghetti westerns, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Jean-Luc Godard made the French new wave love story masculine and feminine and Ingmar Bergman released his haunting, unsettling persona. Four very different films from four very different filmmakers and yet their influence, along with a truckload of others, can be felt in another film from the same year, Sejan Suzuki's surrealist gangster picture, Tokyo Drifter. The film is a hodgepodge of genres, filming techniques and tone, all while utilising a very straightforward crime script. In Tokyo Drifter, the story follows Tetsuya Watari as the reformed Yakuza hitman Phoenix. Tetsu is forced to roam Japan, avoiding execution by rival gangs. And I I should say, for those who are unfamiliar with the genre, Yakuza is a popular um, film genre in Japanese cinema, focusing on the lives and dealings of Japanese organised crime syndicates, or Yakuza. Uh, Tetsu is a member of a recently deactivated Yakuza gang. His boss, to whom he holds absolute loyalty, Kurata, has given up the life of crime for himself and his syndicate. Otsuka, a rival gang boss, attempts to recruit Tetsu into his organisation, but is turned down. After failing, Otsuka tends an assassin to neutralise Tetsu, fearing he will interfere with a real estate scam. Looking to profit from the scheme himself and fearing that his group is threatened by his presence, Kurata asks Tetsu to leave and live the life of a drifter. Director Seijun Suzuki made a host of other serial crime films in the 60s and they are all worth a look, but none is as visually striking or off the wall as Tokyo Drifter, which manages to pack all of those styles and genres into only 82 minutes. It's also pretty clear within the first few minutes of the film, well, I thought that it, it had a huge influence on Tarantino, um, <laughs> yeah. Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs. Um, I think he I think he might have seen this film. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. one or two times. Maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, Suzuki's been accused of producing movies that make no sense and no money. It's just one of the many reasons audiences around the world continue to rediscover him. Um, I'm told, Cerise, that you're a bit of an aficionado. Am I right or am I wrong? Uh, well, I've seen a few over the years. Uh, there's still a lot lot of others I haven't. Um, there's even one or two screening in uh, the week or so ahead at the Japanese Film Festival locally that I've not seen, including one with a, a real mouthful of a German name like Zigunerweisen or something like that. <laughs> I have no idea what that might mean. <laughs> It's definitely not a Japanese word. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I was um, introduced to the films of Sejin Suzuki at MIF many years ago. There was a retrospective, I think, curated by Philip Brophy. Oh, and, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and this was part of that program way back when, and maybe that's 15, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, I didn't uh, get to see them. I, this is my uh, entry into oh, is it his... Oh, Yes, first film. Because he yeah. still made a couple of films in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um, he only died... Uh, it was just earlier this year, but um, oh, okay. Pistol Opera was this extremely bizarre, highly colourful return after many years away from filmmaking. And that was about 15 years ago. And then many years later, a bizarre musical called Princess Raccoon. Uh, <laughs> it's one great. of the most colourful, nonsensical musicals I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> Did it have yeah. a raccoon in it? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I 
uh, yes, I, I kind think of. He, I think you'd remember. Yeah, <laughs> sort of a, raccoon. a raccoon woman who was. Oh. I don't remember. It's not oh. important. Okay. Uh, the plotting isn't always the very most important thing in his films, especially once he'd hit his straps in the sixties and and left what I understand were quite typical B movie uh, making practices behind and, and moved into just well he'd be receiving scripts and then applying all sorts of pop art wackiness to them and Tokyo Drifter just uh, I mean there is a labyrinthine script in there and you can try to follow it and all the, the crosses and double crosses if you can but it's kind of irrelevant enjoyably irrelevant I'm so <laughs> glad you said the, that the, the, the joy in this film is in all of the charismatic people on screen and, and amazing outfits and the just mind-boggling decor and mise-en-scene and the go-go dancing and, yeah the go-go dancing sometimes viewed from beneath the floor <laughs> through some colourful pipes, through uh, yeah, uh, the, his use of colour is just uh, 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 it is extraordinary. It was clearly hugely influential on Tarantino. Um, Kill Bill clearly drew from these even that films. song. Listening to that song, yeah, yeah. it could be straight out of uh, 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 ripped ripped off uh, and put straight into a Tarantino yeah. film. Yeah, absolutely. basically, yeah, yeah. which gives these films actually a weirdly timeless quality you know they're not made just recently exactly but there's something because they are pastiches of things that have subsequently been pastiched heavily by mm. Tarantino or perhaps Jim Jarmusch as well and one or two other folks with a keen eye for cool characters and uh, people who carry themselves in a certain way and and um, uh, are beholden to peculiar codes of conduct yeah um, yeah I mean the the, the main the, the lead in this film is a really baby-faced character, actually, but he's incredibly charismatic and he, yeah. he certainly rocks a blue, powder blue suit beautifully <laughs> well, especially when walking through snow, snow. sometimes real, sometimes clearly artificial. <laughs> Being um, yeah. sort of uh, chased down by a train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes real, sometimes yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, the, there is such joy in the artifice in this film and all these wonderful things that happen through screens, um, uh, sometimes colour just changes behind a screen uh, to, to reflect that something happened in the film, but it's not necessarily expressionist, but it kind of is. Like there's a, a big uh, change from white to red at one point when someone has died, but it, it's not a, exactly as if the whole screen is filled with blood. I mean, we know someone perished. It's just more for the beauty of this bizarre sudden change. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of different plays of lighting and... Um, and sudden strange returns to that theme, that musical theme that just crops up as diegetically and extra diegetically throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Just characters find themselves humming it sometimes. Uh, it. Yep. Yeah. And you will find yourself humming it yeah. afterwards, as I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Extraordinary film. And with one amazing all-in brawl towards the end, which <laughs> is just hilarious and actually masterfully choreographed. Uh, there's a lot about the film that... If, if you were a lazy viewer, you could think this was somehow lazy filmmaking, that it was all just chaotic. But actually, I think it must have been pretty rigorously plotted. I, the, definitely the production design, uh, as you said, Cerise, there was one scene where, um, I, I can't remember, I think the clothing actually reflected it as well, but it was sort of not quite canary yellow, but an entire yellow bar that they, mm. they walked into, which I thought was an in, intriguing colour to choose for a bar. It's just... <laughs> 
<laughs> doesn't happen often. And while it was, you know, the, the theme of Yakuza is very j- Japanese, it was interesting how much this was borrowing from Western um, yeah. styling and... Uh, Spaghetti Westerns in particular. Yeah. Oh, but just so much though. The, uh, the curious, there was a whole lot of, uh, he kept on cutting back to sort of montages of uh, signage that was strange, you know, names, Western names of bars or what looks like funny little juke joints and and all of that. Um, but I did watch this. I, I must admit, when I started watching it, I was a bit distracted. I'd come off doing something else. So I sat there and this film sort of <laughs> came at me and I thought, huh, what's going on? <laughs> Hang on, Emma, you're not concentrating. But um, it appears that even if you do concentrate, you don't yeah. <laughs> You don't know what's going on. So I'm, I'm, I did actually resign myself to it. I thought um, because it is on Stan and I watched it on Stan and I thought um, I will go back and maybe start it again and then I decided not to and I'm glad I didn't because there's something about it's, a, it's such a nice little punchy film and just to punch through 82 minutes of it is quite a, a little thrill really yeah it was fun I, I enjoyed the yeah I enjoyed the mise-en-scene like you said the color palettes were beautiful lots of shadow work which I really liked as well it was just a lot of fun it felt like a b-movie but with more artistry or something I really enjoyed it and I was reading that the studio that produced it kept cutting the budget um, which might explain why it makes a little sense a lot of scenes were cut so you have these strange jump cuts from from action oh, it's to action. Fast. so I, was, yeah. I, I found it really hard to to navigate as well and I watched I think I watched about half an hour of it and thought oh my god same as you I don't I haven't been paying attention so then I watched back and thought no oh, I was paying attention <laughs> or I thought maybe I'm not reading the subtitles fast enough I don't know but um yeah even on second watching it didn't make any more, more sense than it did the first time but I, it was fun it was a fun, a fun film, and interesting to see how heavily influenced it, the Japanese culture was at the time by American cinema and American pop culture. And um, I'm actually wondering. It's interesting because there's a Japanese film called The Hidden Fortress, which is meant to have um, influenced Kimisawa film. Mm. Yeah, which is meant to have in, influenced um, George Lucas. George Lucas, heavily. right? Yes. And if you watch this Tokyo Drifter, you'll see it has this left to, uh, or sorry, right to left frame wipe that occurs I over the... I remember that. The, yeah. the wipe across screen. Yeah, it usually across sort of scenic, mm. you know, big, wide, establishing scenic shots. And that is something that happens in Star Wars. So yeah. maybe, oh, maybe, maybe George Lucas as well. Maybe, maybe. And I think I might be drawing a long bow, but you know when the opening scenes are in black and white and then he sort of looks down and at this orange yeah, object. So it's been painted in afterwards. And I was thinking, did Spielberg steal that for um <laughs> for, for his, well, what, what was his film called? Uh, Schindler's, Schindler's, Schindler's List. Schindler's List, yeah. had it. Well, yeah, the Rose, the Red Rose. Schindler's List influenced by Tokyo Drifter. That's <laughs> very interesting. interesting. I might be drawing a massively long That is very interesting. <laughs> but I definitely, that is definitely Kill Bill though because Kill Bill started with black the, and the black and white and yes. went to the colour. Yeah, and there's yeah. a, there was a huge amount of cross-pollination between the spaghetti westerns and Japanese cinema uh, as well. And so you look at, say, Kurosawa's Yojimbo 
leading to Sergio Leone's um, uh, Fistful of Dollars and um, that man with no name thing, which uh, it works just as well in a gangster context as it does in a a Western context, especially if you've got a drifter as the lead (laughs) character. Exactly, perfect. With a a catchy theme tune, which will return as a motif time and again. Um, Let's play it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you just hum a few bars and get this thing started? Eh? You, no, I'm sure no, you... no, no, no. Yeah, yeah it does. It's, it's an earworm. La, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you'd like to see Tokyo Drifter, there is a free screening this Wednesday at 3.45pm at Acme. And Cerise, were you saying it's in 35mm? Yeah, I am. It's a, the Japanese film festival seem to do this every year, get hold of... Um, perhaps through the Japan Foundation, 35 mil prints access to wonders from their Japanese archives, which I think they're actually obliged to screen for free. Otherwise, there's no reason whatsoever for them to choose to do that. Um, they do often put them on at odd times of day. So I think uh, this this is one of six, I think, six Suzuki films that are screening on, on film uh, during the Japanese Film Festival. So that's, that's nice. I mean, really, if you can Very get nice, out during the day, one, one or two of them might be evening screenings, but... There are other classic titles there like Youth of the Beast, um, which was made just a few years prior to this, I think, uh, and several others. They're, they're, all the ones I've seen I've, I've enjoyed tremendously. He's, there's no one else who ever made films like him except in as much as people who've tried to, or who have ripped him off. But <laughs> there's only one Suzuki. There's only one person who makes films quite as, as uh, gloriously batshit uh, but as composed <laughs> as these are. And they are so composed. It's, um, yeah, they're... Gorgeous. <laughs> I, I should say also, if you have Stan, they're, they're, they're doing a retrospective sort of um, screening. What do you call them? Screening? Uh, Offering? <laughs> broadcast? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But that, yes, they are. But I think they're the big screen. The big screen's do a way to see, see it. Can, see guys. It. Yeah. All yeah. right. We'll be back in a minute. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. From Oscar-nominated writer-director Jan Trebek uh, of Divided We Fall fame, The Teacher is a black comedy inspired by the true story of a communist-era school teacher who manipulated her pupils and their families for unprecedented, unprecedented sorry, personal gain. Uh, Trebek and his regular screenwriting companion Peter Jarkovsky have chosen a premise that sets up a dark satire about governance and human nature. Set in Bratislava in 1983 when Czechoslovakia was under communist rule, the movie centres on a new teacher, Maria Drazdekova, played by Zuzana Moreri, who, upon meeting her students, asks for their parents' lines of work. Using the children's grades as leverage, Maria plans to blackmail the parents into favours. These range from the menial, like fixing her washing machine, to the potential potentially ruinous, like smuggling a cake to Moscow by plane, which could cost a father who works at the airport his job. Miss Moreri has great fun with the character, a tricky part because Maria nearly always maintains a kind-hearted veneer, even at her most venal. It's clear she has no regard for her class's well-being or education. What did we make of the teacher? I like the word venal. So do I. Venal. It's not used enough, is it? <laughs> As opposed to venereal. Um, I, I think that I'm, I'm fascinated by her shoes. Have you noticed that in this film mm. they, they seem to focus on her um, little silver dance-like shoes? In fact, even some of the poster art yeah. has that image on them and I don't know whether that's whether her shoes were particularly decadent or uh, something like that. Uh, uh, 
pretty inaccessible for the average uh, person, I think, you know, to have fancy shoes in, uh-huh. in the height of normalisation era Czechoslovakia. Okay, because yeah. that's what I, I, I thought that's what it was hinting at and I thought that you could shed some light on that, mm, Cerise. Some light. Because there's a few things... Um, Definitely this is about, um, you know, the social structure and political structure of the time. 1983 is a setting. Um, She has a lovely 1983 perm at one stage. Uh, So there were a couple of things in there that... um, uh, it sounds very austere. I probably should preface this by sa- saying this: all, all, all this description of this film sounds very austere. And you did say it was a satire, and I think that the the comedy was really quite well worked into this film. Um, it's definitely there, and it's the type of um, storyline you wouldn't expect comedy to be incorporated into. Um, but it really it, it works around the the idea is that has a parent meeting is sort of the fulcrum of the film, where everyone's getting together with the head teacher and deciding whether they will um, put down their signature as a as as a complaint against this teacher. So they're kind of collecting signatures, and there's the and this is. A- a result of one of the students attempting suicide was that the yeah thing? that's kind of yeah yeah heart that was hilarious mm. no that wasn't the, <laughs> that wasn't one of the funny moments of the film guys uh, so there there's a lot that are pro her and there's a lot that are against her or it's more that the fear of speaking out that comes you know that comes out quite strongly because she is obviously very influential far more influential and powerful than any teachers here in Australia. Um, so everyone's very um, fearful of uh, what she could do in terms of their child's prospects and going on to university or whatever they could possibly do or get a job, basically. But it was interesting because one of the characters um, was, um, I think he was divorced. You know the character, Cerise, that she was very much interested in, in I think, making her partner who was mm. a single uh, dad with a child. Um, and I was trying to work out that that relationship there, that the family relationship, him with his wife. He said, I think at one stage he says she divorced him, but they sort of talk about her having gone away and then the, mm. the child being reconciled with the red through the Red Cross. Okay, I don't remember that clearly because I'm I'm relying upon my own memory oh, here of seeing okay. this film well over a year ago. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but um, I, I do know who which character you mean, and and you're actually jogging my memory. And there was yes, there was definitely that. Um, I do remember there was an estrangement that was alluded to in some sort of slightly cryptic terms there. Um, I, I think there was some sense that while he was more or less stuck in Bratislava in doing extremely menial work as punishment for some sort of dissidence. And he was an astrophysicist. Yes, he was an so, astrophysicist yeah. and, and and being given extremely menial, demeaning, deliberately, pointedly demeaning work. Um, yeah, they, they might have left uh, to, to a, in some hope to have a, a better life, I suppose. I'm, I'm sure it would have, the punishment meted out to him was not atypical, I think, for a lot of people of that time. And the punishment, such punishments were usually threats to the successive generations as well, that they would be tarred with the same brush that mm. um, and, and would be punished and perhaps de- denied a proper education, topically mm-hmm. here, uh, you know, denied opportunities, which is exactly what this monstrous teacher in this film is, is 
using as leverage when she has all the children stand up early on in the film and announce their names and their <laughs> mummy and daddy's professions <laughs> and she's making notes of what they all do and, oh, he works at the airport, is that right? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, she's, she's, uh, she is a, a wonderful monster. She's actually, I think, a, a really terrific creation. I actually met the actress briefly um, in Calvary last year and, really? and it sort of freaked oh. me out a bit because I'd only ever seen her in this film. I believe she's quite a well-known actress in Slovakia. And uh, you know, she's perfectly pleasant in real life. <laughs> she was acting. Who knew? That's what actors do. My God. I know. But I she, thought they so, would just like that. So convincing <laughs> is she in this role, and especially if you come to it with, say, no baggage. It's always the joy, I think, of, of films from parts of the world you might get too much exposure to, though I myself do as the director of a Czechoslovak film festival, yeah. but I've still never seen her before. So she is so compelling. And... Um, uh, and and uh, it's, a, it's a weird film uh, in as much as Jan Trebek has made a lot of rubbish in recent years. He's been a very prolific filmmaker, but he had a, a golden run with the same script writer, Petr Yakovsky, in the late 90s, early noughties. Films like uh, Cozy Dens, uh, Divided We Fall and uh, Pupendo were all burlesquing different parts of Czechoslovak 20th century history and and the struggles of people to somehow stay sane um, under various uh, oppressive conditions, whether it was World War II or um, some part of the Soviet occupation. Um, and this is a real return to form. This is a terrific film, I think. It's extremely uncomfortable viewing. It, it is a comedy <laughs> in as much as... Um, well, not in as much as those other three films I just mentioned are. And I mean, Divided We Fall is actually uh, a Holocaust film of sorts. I mean, it's all about trying to hide um, a, a Jewish member of the community in a, a house. The, the level of comedy there gets so dark that he's actually hidden in an attic at one point with an enormous smoked ham, which oh is, yeah, God. but what can you do? Uh, it's, uh, it's, that level of darkness and the humour is in this film as well. If, if anything, though, this is, I think, less funny than Divided We Fall. Um, Wow, but I I'm, haven't I'm, seen Divided yeah. Before, Oh, it's so terrific. I can, well, I can knew sort of you it. out there. Yeah, it's a, it was an, an Oscar nominee in its time as well, I think. And But he was really on a, on a roll then. And in recent times, he's just been phoning it in, just making lots and lots of films, none of them tremendously good, and some of them a bit too moralistic. Whereas this this one has a nice amorality to it, a <laughs> highly charismatic, amoral character in the lead, which is... Always makes for great viewing, I find. I mean, you, you obviously you have your bring your own moral compass to viewing something like this, but having someone that wonderfully monstrous as the centre point of a film, I think, is to the benefit of it. I, uh, yeah, calling her monstrous is a really great way of putting it because I think she's she's not your stereotypical monster. If you call someone monstrous, she's definitely not what you'd think. Especially, she's quite diminutive as well, small in stature. Um, but she she has a big voice in the classroom when she wants to have one. And it's not that she she is particularly she's that it's that subtle scary. It's that being able to play the system and just work under it and play it's to people's weaknesses. Of power, isn't it? Uh, she's really. truly yeah. Machiavellian. Uh, she is. Yeah. She is 
totally Machiavellian and it, and it's kind of interesting because this idea of um, stepping forward, which was obviously such a huge deal for the parents who felt wronged um, and whether whether there would be any uh, punitive um, response, that's sort of what's played out in this film as well, which, you know, I won't say what actually happens. But um, I also like the setting that they seem to be um, I don't know whether this was on purpose in order to make it feel very Eastern European, but the, the, the sports the children were in to choose in 1983 to have um, the, one of the young girls as a gymnast just mm. seems so very appropriate. And the, the boy was a, um, a wrestler, a Roman, not a WWE wrestler, a, a Greco-Roman wrestler. And it just... The, the the actual um, production design was lovely too. Like the, the, the wallpaper. The wallpaper was absolutely sensational. I would love it in my house now, <laughs> just say. It's probably quite on trend now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, um, yeah, I did really enjoy this film. I didn't think it was something that I would say to I would, you know, will necessarily resonate with me for a long time, but I'm glad that I got to see it. And I don't think it's necessarily a huge cinematic film, although you might have another idea about that. Well, I think, yeah, it's worth seeing in a cinema as as films are. Um, (laughs) And also how often do you see a Slovak film? Which it is. The director's check and and screenwriter, but the, the film... Uh, that the language and the setting is Slovak, quite specifically. It is yeah. Czechoslovakia at the time, but it's Slovak. Yeah. And that's extremely rare around these parts. You get the odd Czech film released here, but they're few and far between as well. It seemed to, I think that's, uh, it's, it is a perfect Slovak film to get a general release because it, it not too heavily hand, heavy-handedly emphasised that, but it was definitely prevalent through the film and there was a song that they sang towards the end, which I don't know whether it was actually the, I don't know, the national anthem, but <laughs> um, it was a lot about Slov- Slovakia being powerful and da, 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 which was appropriate. Yeah, probably. I can't um, remember. It was yeah. ages ago I saw it, but that sounds yeah. anthemic. It did Those sound very, sentiments yes, sound yes. very anthemic and yeah. perhaps also a little delusional. But yeah. that's anthems for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. As in, you know, Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, Alice. It's all a bit awkward, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> but she was an excellent character and she is, like you said, one of the great the great monsters of 2017, I think. And she's actually based on, on real-life incidents that the writer experienced in primary school, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. And um, it, it's very believable. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are any number of people grafting uh Grifting. 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 (laughs) Just corruptly working the system as best they could um, in order to have some sort of quality of life. Mm. And in a way you can sort of sympathise with them a bit because times were were grim. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, for her, she is psychopathic. I mean, to be so... So uh, far removed from... But there, um, were the, the, there were the parents that were completely complicit with her as well. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that, yeah. that is what's really interesting in this film is seeing the, who, who will play along, who won't, and who will agonise over it the longest. <laughs> and actually the, the father you mentioned earlier, Emma, um, he's actually played by an actor, Peter Bebiak, who's a really terrific yes. director. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. he's, he was the director of the opening night film at this year's Czech Slovak Film Festival, The Line. So he's ah. actually, a, 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 I think, 
going to be a, a real name to look out for um, behind the camera every bit as much, perhaps more so, I think, than in front of it. Does he actually come from an acting background? He does. He does. Right, perhaps right. explains why the performances in that film were so terrific as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I really recommend this film if people want to, to see what's... What was so funny about um, the about Iron the, Curtain? Yeah, about life behind the Iron Curtain. That comrade yeah, teacher. I mean, things are so bleak. You kind of got to laugh because otherwise, you yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you'd like to see the teacher, it's on national release and can be seen via Palace Cinemas or Cinema Nova. Uh, you can catch 1922 on Netflix and Tokyo Drifter, along with many other Seijun Suzuki classics, currently available on Stan or at the Japanese Film Festival that's happening at Acme. Is it just at Acme that it's happening? Uh, or around? I think so. Get on the Acme website so. anyway and you can, uh, get on you can it, find Get onto yeah. it really quickly because I think that this is maybe the final week of it or... It sounds about right. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, Look, what do you mean? Free films. Who, who doesn't want to be uh, there to yeah, see free Sage exactly. and Suzuki films? Absolutely. Uh, you've been listening to Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard and myself, Lisa Kovacevic, on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Uh, on next week's show, I won't be here, but Alexandra Heller Nichols and Thomas Cobble. Nicholas. 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 Sorry. Nicholas. I'm butchering Thomas names. Caldwellian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for your best of show next week. Yes. Yes, you'll, you'll get the team back together again. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 